New Testament. We call it a book, but it's not really a book. It's a, it's a letter. If you're, if you're younger, a letter is kind of like, like a long email. If you're much younger, it's like a really long series of text messages that aren't instant. You have to print them out and then give them to somebody, and they travel hundreds of miles to bring it to the recipient. Stanley Stowers is Professor Emeritus of Religious Studies uh, from Brown University. He once wrote that there's something about the nature of early Christianity that made it a movement of letter writers. Of the 27 books in the New Testament, 21 take the form of letters. And both the book of Acts uh, of the Apostles and also the book of Revelation, they contain letters within the texts. And on top of that, we still have physical evidence to this day of over 9,000 letters that Christians wrote from one to the other in, uh, throughout classical antiquity, the first to third centuries. As we spend this morning examining the very end of Paul's letter to the Philippian Christians, I, I believe it's very important for us to, apply, uh, to understand and to apply the theology of biblical inspiration. Now, what do I mean by that? Here at uh, Rosemount Bible Church, we believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. You'll hear us use that word inspired. By that, we don't mean that the text itself is inspirational or inspiring, although it totally is. What we mean when we say inspired is that the Bible is God-breathed. That's the word. The word would be translated more to being breathed by God than being inspiring emotionally. So what does that mean? God breathed life-changing vitality into these texts in a very similar way to the way that God spoke the universe into existence, or in a similar way to how God breathed life into Adam and Eve. The Bible, we believe, is completely written and composed by human authors, like Paul of Tarsus, the author of Philippians. We also believe that at the very same time, those authors were completely influenced by the Holy Spirit of God to perfectly reveal his son, Jesus Christ, to us. You see, from a very human point of view, Paul wrote this letter for very specific reasons, to very specific people, at a very specific location in the world and at a very specific location in time. And from a very divine point of view, the Holy Spirit breathed supernatural significance into the apostles' words and through the apostles' circumstances at that time. And together, they reach out to us through history to reveal Jesus Christ in a way that's not only interesting, but in a way that's life-changing. Uh, we can see that as we look back at uh, how... Uh, our teaching over the past weeks, how Paul's letter, uh, he, he had very specific goals that he intended in communicating to the Philippians, and we see them on the screens behind me. He wanted to praise the community for their partnership in the gospel with him. He wrote them because he wanted to give them uh, an update on how he was doing and what his state of mind was like through his circumstances. He wanted to praise his co-workers, Timothy and Epaphroditus, for the work that they were doing. He wanted to warn them about false teaching 
And he wanted to rally them into this spirit of unity and steadfastness. And while Paul is communicating all of this to the Philippians, in parallel, the Holy Spirit is doing some work too. He is revealing truth to us through Paul's writing, through Paul's circumstances about Jesus Christ. For example, the Holy Spirit reveals to us how Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross makes those of us who believe in him citizens of the gospel. That's not something Paul would have rationally known on his own. It was revealed through his writing and circumstances. The Holy Spirit reveals to us that Jesus is absolutely equal in power, in glory to God the Father. And the Holy Spirit reveals to us how Jesus will one day replace our decaying earthly bodies with glorified bodies, just like the glorified body that we saw Jesus in after his death and resurrection. In our text today, we'll find that Paul uses the very end of this letter, like Natalie said, as an opportunity to thank the Philippians for a gift that they sent him while he was in prison through a mutual friend they had named Epaphroditus. That is the mundane, everyday, very human perspective. And just like I said, uh, everywhere else in Scripture, the Holy Spirit reveals something special about Jesus through the author, through their mundane, everyday human communication. What I hope to demonstrate by the end of this message today is that the Spirit will reveal to us how a fundamental facet of Jesus' very nature involves living in community, and how we too are meant to live Christ-shaped lives together with one another in community. So let's read the text. It'll be Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 23. I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard Bible. Paul writes, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked an opportunity to act. Not that I speak from need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with little, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you've done well to share with me in my difficulty. You yourselves know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek the profit which increases to your account. But I've received everything in full, and I have an abundance. I'm amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs through his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and our Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. Now, I'd like to parse through this text, bless you, a couple of times. 
once to go through the facts, another time to go through Paul's state of mind, and then finally to make some deductions together uh, through which we can make some applications. First, let's go through the facts. Fact number one, Paul is in prison. At the writing of this letter, and all of Paul's letters to the Colossians, to the Galatians, to Philemon, Paul is in jail during this time. He makes that clear at the very beginning of this letter in Philippians chapter 1, verse 7. He establishes uh, that Paul, he, he himself, is in chains. He strongly suggests that his imprisonment was a result of defending and confirming the gospel. We also know that Paul is at risk of death in Philippians 1, Verses 20 and 21, Paul seriously contemplates the prospect of death. We learned earlier in this sermon series from our brother Doug Virgent how much, how much differently a first century Roman prison is from anything that we would experience in the 21st century. In those times, prisoners had no rights. They had, uh, the government had made no efforts because they felt no compulsion to care for their physical needs. No food, no water, no hygiene, no medicine, no heating, no air conditioning. Paul hints at this prospect of death in Philippians chapter 4, verses 12, while he describes the spectrum of circumstances that he's come to know, from being well-fed to being hungry, from living in plenty to being in want, without any kind of aid from the, the outside world. If Paul were to languish in this prison for months on end, he would probably die. Another fact is that the Philippian Christians sent gifts to Paul with, uh, through Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was first introduced to us uh, as a character in Philippians chapter 2, verse 25. Paul describes him as a messenger of the Philippians and a minister, someone who cared for Paul in his time of great need. In our passage today, Paul confirms in the text that he received from Epaphroditus the gifts sent for him by the Philippians. We learn that the gifts most likely saved Paul's life. If it's true that he would have died in prison without any care, then it stands to reason that the gifts he received have saved his life. We don't know exactly what the nature of the gift was. It very well could have been money to, to buy the supplies that he needed. But what we do know from the text is Paul describes in chapter 4, verse 18, that it was more than enough, and that Paul considered himself now amply supplied while in prison, now that he'd received the gifts through Epaphroditus. And the last fact we can see through this passage is that Epaphroditus risked his life to bring these gifts to Paul. What do I mean by that? Well, back in Philippians 2, an earlier part of the letter, we learned that the Philippians themselves were greatly distressed. Why? Because they have heard about some kind of sickness that Epaphroditus would have contracted while traveling to bring these gifts to Paul. In Philippians 2, verse 27, Paul confirms that Epaphroditus was in fact sick, sick to the point of death, Reiterating again in verse 30 that Epaphroditus came so close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life in service to Paul. That's what we can tell from the texts. What can we derive next from Paul's state of mind? I have to confess, Paul is a great writer, Natalie, and he is very bold. But uh, scholars have a hard time with this last portion of 
Paul's letter to the Philippians because it really, it's, it's out of place for a couple reasons. Normally when you write someone a letter and uh, you're thanking them for a gift, that would probably come at the beginning. It would be sort of an introductory thing more than a postscript. Another thing is the language. It's, from a linguistic point of view, very humanly, it's super awkward, especially when you compare Paul's writing style. The rest of Philippians is very lofty, very poetic. It's, it's, it exalts God. And then the, the constructs are just super weird. And I'll give you three reasons why uh, some, some readers, some scholars, some commentators have trouble with the text. It's just different. Uh, in fact, a superficial of the re, uh, reading of the text here, we might think Paul might have been dismissive or not appreciative of, of the gifts that he received. And and people will think that because of three qualifiers, three corrections Paul makes about his own words, as he stumbles over his words, he forces himself to explain them further. So we're going to look at these three qualifiers, we're going to to get a sense of what it sounds like on the surface, what Paul really meant, and why this is important, why am I sharing this today? It speaks to Paul's state of mind and to our topic today. So first qualifier that we see is found in in chapter 4, verse 10, where Paul writes that, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that you at last, uh, excuse me, that at last you renewed your concern for me. There's two things there, the at last and the renewed. At first glance, it seems as if Paul thinks that their concern somehow diminished in him. Otherwise, why would he say that you renewed your concern? Did you lose it? Our contemporary ears might even hear him say, at last, and it kind of sounds passive-aggressive, like, oh, at last, you renewed your concern for me. Uh, But Paul's quick to amend his statement. You see, he wrote his letter on papyrus. There's no autocorrect feature on papyrus. And this is the very end of the letter. You like that, David? (laughs) So he's not going to rewrite the whole letter. He's just going to to clarify what he's saying. Okay. Um, Oh, I lost my place now. Uh, Paul clarifies that he knows they're always concerned about it. It's just that they haven't had the opportunity to show it tangibly in some way. They haven't, they haven't been together. That, that opportunity hasn't presented itself. In this verse, Paul's just trying to communicate that it was the Philippians' concern for him and not the material gift they gave him that was causing him to rejoice. That's the focus here. The concern is the focus of the declaration, not the gift. This is what prompted Paul to remember a little bit after this verse of his early days of ministry with the Philippians in verse 15 and with the other gifts that uh, they had shared with him when he ministered in Thessalonica in verse 16. So he's fully aware of their concern for him. What's important is that Paul was moved by their concern for him. It, it, it speaks to their relationship. That's what matters. The second qualifier is found in verse 11, where Paul writes, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. It reads almost dismissive, as though Paul is saying, you, you really shouldn't have. No, you really, you really shouldn't have. I, I don't need this. First of all, the pronoun this, the word this, a pronoun replaces another word. This replaces the word rejoicing in the previous verse. Paul is saying that he isn't rejoicing because of his need. Well, then why is he rejoicing? The answer is found in the secret that Paul reveals to them. He writes, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances, the secret of being content in any and every situation. This is important because Paul is using this opportunity to rejoice with the Philippians 
about a very special spiritual truth that the Holy Spirit is about to reveal about Jesus. That truth is that through the strength that only Jesus can provide, we can all experience this kind of spiritual contentment regardless of our physical circumstances. That only comes because of Jesus. And the third and the final qualifier we find in this passage is found in verse 17, where Paul writes, not that I desire your gifts. You see how these misunderstandings are starting to stack? At first it appeals that that Paul doesn't uh, think the Philippians cared about him. Then it sounds like he doesn't really need their gift. And now it sounds like he doesn't want their gift at all. But Paul's emphasis here is on what he really wants, deep down, in contrast to the material gift. Paul says that what he really desires is that more be credited to the Philippians' account than to himself. In the contemporary English translation of the Bible, the verse reads, I want you to receive the blessing that comes from giving. This is important because we see that the deep-down desire of Paul's heart was focused more on the blessing of the Philippians than he is focused on his own blessing, especially under really, really difficult circumstances that he's going through in prison. This state of mind echoes back to an earlier portion of Paul's letter, still in Philippians, in which he encourages the Philippian believers to consider one another as more important than themselves, to not merely look out for their own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And in this, in this passage, Paul is practicing what he preaches. So after having examined the facts in the text, and after looking at Paul's state of mind and his motivation in writing the Philippians about their gift, there's one more significant conclusion that we can draw from this passage about giving and receiving out of concern for one another. And this conclusion really goes to the heart of today's message, that we were designed to be like Christ individually, yes, but also as a community. Not as individuals in isolation from one another. In his commentary on Philippians, theologian Gordon Fee, he remarks how the giving and the receiving described here elevates the Philippians' role beyond that of just a concerned party, beyond that of a brother or sister in Christ. It makes them, Paul says, partners in the gospel with him, participants in the gospel with him. Fee writes, what is unique to Paul's relationship with the Philippians is that their partnership with him was not so much one-on-one, but a three-way bond between Paul and the Philippians and Jesus Christ. And I believe this three-way bond is an essential part of our understanding of cruciformity and of fully living like Jesus. In other words, we we can't live fully like Jesus without living in community with one another, with other Christians. Ça marche pas. It doesn't work. Michael Gorman is an American New Testament scholar. He's a leading author on the subject of cruciformity. He writes that vignettes like today's passage, this, this whole giving and receiving and thankfulness thing, it exemplifies how Paul's spirituality of cruciformity is fundamentally communal in character. His mission was not merely to preach a message that produced individuals living their own lives of cruciformity, although it does mean that, 
but also to form visible alternative communities of cruciformity that are both animated and governed by the true Lord Jesus. If you were here with us at the beginning of this sermon series, our brother Leslie Muirhead, he taught us how closely this theological concept of cruciformity, it literally means to be cross-shaped. And it means living a life fully conformed, fully resembling the life of Jesus. He also explained how in the New Testament, cruciformity is closely tied to this word pairing, this word construct, in Christ or in the Lord. Grammatically speaking, this construct it would be an adverb. That means that it modifies or enhances or it makes an action, uh, it, it further specifies an action. And it's an adverb. So in Christ or in the Lord. In communal cruciformity or in following Jesus together as a community. Having power in Jesus that power is never used for ourselves. It's never used for our own personal benefit. Having power in Jesus means using that power to benefit others, in service to others, particularly the weak and the marginalized. In communal cruciformity, when we hope together, we hope in the Lord. And that requires a vision and an understanding of the future, God's future, that involves all of humanity, not just ourselves, not just our own circumstances, but everybody's. And in communal cruciformity, when we love in Christ, that, that love happens with other people. It's not a love of oneself. It's a love of others. It's sacrificial love. It's not of selfish love. It even means loving our enemies, so I reflect on this communal, reciprocal relationship we're supposed to have as believers together in Christ, and I can't help but think of how Jesus already painted a very vivid word picture of this back in the Gospel of John, starting in chapter 15, verse 4. I'm going to read it in the New International Version this time. Jesus says here, Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself, it must remain in the vine. Well, I am the vine, and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. So now remain in my love. So what? What does this mean for us today, practically? I believe that we need to confront the fact that our modern Western culture, the culture that you and I live in, I believe that it's become so afflicted with excessive individualism, a focus on the individual, that it threatens this, this ability to live in community together, the way that Jesus calls us to be like him, living in community. In many cases, we've lost touch with what it means to live in community with other people, haven't we? We live in the same home without ever really interacting with our neighbors or knowing who they are, or what they're going through. We drive long distances to our workplaces. We don't really know what our neighborhoods are like, what, what issues our, neighbor, our neighborhoods are struggling with. 
Uh, we even go to the same church for years and we don't know each other's names. And by and large, sometimes we're totally fine with that. It seems normal, even in a smaller church like this one. In fact, we may have deliberately chosen this way of life and we'll, we'll rationalize that by using language. Well, like this is, well, this is just my schedule or that's just my priorities or it's my personality. That's who I am to justify our disconnectedness with the people that are right next to us. But it's not fine. Solitude and isolation is not at all what living like Jesus looks like. Gorman, in his book on cruciformity as Paul's narrative, he exhorts the, the evangelical Christian terminology of having a personal relationship with Jesus. He writes that this relationship... Though it is personal, it's not private. Cruciform faith can never be complete until it issues in cruciform love for others. So let me suggest a few practical things that we can do to counter our tendency to isolate ourselves from following Jesus in community with one another. And the first thing I want to suggest is that we have to go to church. If you want to be like Jesus, and if Jesus lived his life in relationship with God and with other people, then you need to share your life with other believers. Remember, he is the vine and we are the branches. No branch can bear fruit by itself. Remain in me and I in you. The church isn't just the building, it's the people together. So I myself, when I'm at home, I am not the church. And Tanya Togius in the car, she by herself is not the church. And Mark Anthony Lettieri, and he's on the piano, he's really good, but he's not the church. But together, when we're together in community, we are the church. That's why I have such a hard time with the idea of regularly going to church online. And I, I, I want to be clear, I'm not talking about the present age we live in, living through a global pandemic, staying home to avoid putting others at risk until your COVID infection passes. That is a very Jesus-like thing to do, okay? That's putting others before yourself. Instead, I'm talking and I'm sort of challenging the idea of consistently going to church online when you have no medical reason to do that. Because that, that isn't really going to church, is it? You're watching other people go to church. You're looking at other people being the church, but you're not with them in that. But Louis, you might say, I'm singing the same songs as them. It's a live stream. I'm singing with them. I'm listening to the same message as them. I'm taking notes. Uh, I'm even praying together with the same people about the same things. And yes, those are totally good things, okay? What I'm saying is, that's not what the church is. Doing those activities is not being the church. Being the church and practicing communal cruciformity with other people isn't something that can be divorced from other people. You can't do that by yourself. You can't do that anonymously. In his book, Simply Christian, the renowned theologian N.T. Wright, he explains that we have been so soaked in the individualism 
of modern Western culture that we feel threatened by the idea that our primary identity is being that of the family we belong to. You see, the church isn't simply a collection of isolated individuals, each person following their own pathways of spiritual growth without ever coming back and having much reference to one another. Now, your experience may sometimes look like that, and it might even feel like that. He says, you can hide in the shadows at the back of the church for a while, but sooner or later, you're going to have to decide whether this is for you or not. Nicky Gumbel is an ordained priest with the Church of England. He was an instrumental in popularizing the Worldwide Alpha Course, an introductory course to the Christian faith. I can't help but think of you, Nick, when, when I bring that up, because we, we were in that together for a time, weren't we? Nikki said, it's my experience of watching people who've come to Christ that unless they meet together with other Christians, it's very difficult, very difficult for their faith to stay alive. And he tells this story about a man, a young man who found himself in this position. Maybe it's a position that sounds familiar to you, a position of being a Christian who has distanced himself or herself from the church, from other Christians. And he visited with an older, an older Christian gentleman. They were together in their living room, and there was a fire going on, just, just dying. The, the, the coals were just embers at this point, still warm, still glowing. And the, and the older gentleman listened to this young man's story. And without saying a word, he took some tongs, and he grabbed one of the coals and placed them on the mantle. And as the young man was talking through his circumstances, that once hot coal that was glowing red, started, started to lose its color. It was going black again and getting cold. And then without saying another word, the, the older man took the, the coal again, from using the tongs, not his fingers, and, and he placed it back in the embers. And don't you know it, within a very short amount of time, that cold piece of coal, lifeless, started to glow again and warm up. The old man said nothing at all as he got to leave, but the other man knew exactly why he had lost his further, Nikki says. He said, a Christian out of fellowship is like a coal out of the fire. And if you feel like that today, I would like you to know that you don't have to stay that way. What does it mean to go to church then? What does it mean to be a part of it? I can't answer that as thoroughly as I'd like because I'm in my conclusion now, but I really, really want to encourage you this week to think about doing a quick word study in the Bible. Grab it online, pick your favorite translation, and look for the words uh, one another. Okay? There are, are about 65 instances of one another in the New Testament. Starting back at that same passage from Jesus in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, where Jesus said, This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. I urge you, brothers and sisters, it will be fun. Search the New Testament for these one another's. You will see how the church is called to be devoted to one another, to honor one another, to live in harmony with one another, to build one another up, to accept one another, and to care for one another, and serve one another, and on and on and on. 
It's fantastic. That's what the church does. And let me ask you, can you do that at home alone? Can you do any of those things at home alone? Can you do any of that watching church as a spectator? So think about going to church and participating with the church. The second thing I can recommend is to spend time with other Christians. Remember that Paul regarded the Philippians as so much more than brothers and sisters. By virtue of their involvement in his life, Paul regarded them as partners and as participants in the gospel. So we need to spend time with other Christians. We need to be recognizable, not anonymous. We need to know others and to be known by them. We need to care for other people and to let them care for us. Seeing each other, when we see each other on a Sunday or on a Friday night or midweek, that should be a cause for celebration. Wow, Michael Saunders, haven't seen you in such a long time. And our absence should be noticeable. You shouldn't be able to be missing for weeks and no one call you, no one notice. It should be cause for a little bit of concern. We need to practice our spiritual gifts with one another. We need to be able to rejoice in each other's honor, in the things that go well. And we need to be able to mourn together when things don't go well. We can't do any of this alone, and we certainly can't do it anonymously. If you indulge me for a second, just, just quickly, you don't have to talk to them. Just look to your left in your row, to the people in your left, and look at the people to your right. Maybe just glance at the people. You don't have to say hi. No, I, I didn't say that. Just look at them. Hi. Now, do you know their names? Do you know the names of their spouses or their children? Would you know how to pray for them? The church isn't over yet. Come on. <laughs> Have you ever invited them over for a meal or gone out for a coffee or had a phone call? Have you ever served together in some kind of way to our our children, or our youth, or our senior citizens, or in our community? Have you attended a Bible study group together? Have you been in some kind of class? We have a lot of classes in this church. I can recall uh, this story coming back to RBC with Kelly after some years away, and I just remember feeling very intrigued by this guy named Uberson Tepe. Yeah, I never told you about this story. He's one of the elders here now, but back then, he was just this guy, and I sort of, he caught my eye. He'd always be zipping around the church. He'd walk fast. He's always greeting people. He's got a big smile on his face. He's always dressed nicely. He just, he looked cool. <laughs> he is cool. But I was too shy to introduce myself to him. And do you know that probably a year if not more, went by after we first came to the church before we had a mutual friend named Peter Benjamin. He introduced us to one another, and that's, that's all I really needed. Today, I would like to think that Uberson and I enjoy quite a nice friendship together. Uh, we've gone bicycling together. We've gone for walks together. We have spent time praying for each other in the park, for one another, for our families. We talk about we talk about church, we talk about spiritual things. 
We even had some pretty heated discussions sometimes, and we challenge each other, and I like that. It's an extremely gratifying relationship that I cherish in my heart. But I missed out on that opportunity. I missed out on that experience for a year because I was just too shy. So I want to challenge us, as difficult as it might be, to walk away from these things that hold us back from experiencing community with one another. If we want to be like Jesus, really be like Jesus, even in how he participated in community, we're going to have to follow him through some challenging stuff. If you're like me and you're shy, you might need to sacrifice your comfort so that you can be part of the church. And if you're a really busy person, you might need to sacrifice some parts of your calendar so that you can make room to be with other Christians in your life. And if you happen to be a person like Peter Benjamin, I see David Dawson here, he, he also makes me think of this type of person who's really good at connecting two strangers together. They share, they share a mutual connection to him. Please keep doing what you're doing. It's a tremendous gift and it helps bring the church together. The last thing I want to exhort us about today is to, to really confront the tendency that we might have towards isolationism, towards being alone. This is going to be the hardest part of the sermon for me. It was the hardest part to write because I'm preaching at myself much more than I am probably preaching to you. I consider myself very shy. I consider myself to be very introverted. I am not energized by being with people. I'm drained. I don't like crowds. I don't like noise. I don't like small talk. I don't like to turn around in church and greet my neighbor. I don't like to stay after church and chit-chat. I want to go home. I want to have lunch. I almost certainly want to have a nap. I like to be alone. I like to... <laughs> no, it's not a good thing. I like to be alone. I like to be alone a lot. And those things I just mentioned, that is my Western individualist culture talking. Those are my preferences. Those are my priorities. I'm content in my isolation. It's comfortable. I might call myself a very private Christian, a lone ranger Christian, just me and Jesus. The problem with this is that it's really not biblical. If Jesus were physically here, there's no way that it would just be me and Jesus. Because Jesus would be off interacting with other people. He'd be healing somebody miraculously, or he'd be uh, preaching about life in the kingdom of God. He would be challenging the status quo, and I'd have to keep up with him if I would want to be with him. I'd have to be with other people because that's where he would be. He would be with other people. If I really want to follow Jesus the way that the disciples follow Jesus, I'm going to have to get used to being with people. That's how I was made. So is there no room for privacy then, Louis? Didn't Jesus isolate himself? The answer to both questions is yes. Yes, of course. The important thing, though, is to recognize that our call to, to living in community, that is normative. That is the norm. Isolation is the exception to that norm. Jesus spent time with people. He spent time in relationships as a norm. 
the Apostle Paul, he spent time with people. He ministered to them for the gospel as a norm. And yes, in Matthew chapter 6, you might have heard that Jesus encourages us when we pray, pray in a private room to our heavenly Father who's unseen. And he encourages us to do that in contrast to praying loud in public places in a very showy way, in a, in a uh, hypocritical way. And many times throughout the, the Gospels, yes, Jesus totally withdraws from the public from his ministry in isolation so that he could pray to God the Father. The isolation has a purpose. That, that isolation is the exception to the norm. You're not supposed to live in isolation. So those of us who might identify a little more with the way I describe myself, shy, introverted, withdrawn, private, we need to take a hard, long look at how big a place our isolation is taking in our lives. Those of us who, who are perpetually busy, who are rushing from one activity to the next, barely with a breath in between, we need to examine how much, spot, how much time are we spending in our week? How much room are we making to be with other people? Do you make time to attend church in person, health permitting? Do you make time in your week to go to a small group or a Bible study group with other Christians? Do you make time to, to volunteer or to serve with other people, to serve our youth, our children, our seniors, our community? Or is your calendar overbooked with your social engagements, with your hobbies, with your personal interests, with your work? Maybe your watch list of movies and television shows on Netflix is so backed up that you couldn't possibly make time to be with people because there's just another show to watch and you got to stay up to date. Or maybe if you were to check your iPhone usage, it would say that you are using way too much screen time on games or social media scrolling. Or maybe you've become so accustomed to being isolated that the thought of leaving your isolation and being with others just terrifies you. My closing encouragement is to address your isolation, not to ignore it. Bring that to God in prayer. Ask the Holy Spirit to, to take a heart of stone that doesn't feel anymore and to replace it with a heart of flesh that could be once again moved to compassion for other people. I'll close before praying with this very final quote from Michael Gorman's book on cruciformity. He says, this call to cruciformity is a call that no one can fulfill in isolation. It requires others to remind us, to inspire us, to encourage us, work with us, and yes, even count the cost with us. Cruciformity requires that people be able to give to and receive from one another, like we read in our verse today. Finally, cruciformity requires a community in which the story of Christ crucified can be learned and nurtured and contemplated and performed again and again and again and again to the glory of God. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you for the time that we were able to spend together Thank you for your word. Thank you for the, the way that you have called us to be your church, your body, your family. 
This is your design. Help us to love it, Lord. Help us to be active participants in it, regardless of our circumstances. Lord, for those of us who have tendencies towards isolation, Lord, call us out of that. Help us in our reluctance. Help us in our fear. Give us hearts of flesh that can be moved once again towards other people and not to ourselves. Lord, be with us as we leave this place. We ask your blessing in Jesus' name.